All right, we'll, uh, we'll get started. I just wanted to uh, start with a little introduction. Um, my name is Michael Munson. I am the VI coordinator here in the UK. So for any of us doing VI modules, whether that's through Vineyard Training or my Vineyard Institute, um, I'm the guy trying to help out, get uh, cohorts together, get you guys all figured out if there's any tech issues, all that. I just wanted to put a face to the name. Um, so I'm Michael, and if you guys, you know, following this, really, if you have any questions with any of that, I'd love to help help you either get connected to theology um, in, in the vineyard, but also uh, help it get started in your churches. That's our big goal, is to help cohorts get started in, in, in local communities. We think that's where we, we kind of learn the best when we're surrounded with other people that are on some of those same journeys and challenge each other and kind of get to some deeper places with, with learning. So again, I'm Michael and, uh, and I'll help you guys out any way that I can possibly do that. Um, but I don't want to take up any more of Derek's time. So I'm gonna hand it over to Derek. He's the academic dean uh, with VI. And um, I think if you've been around the vineyard any little bit of time, uh, I think you've probably heard his name pop up and uh, I'll let it uh, just happen and you can take over, Derek. Thank you. Yeah. So I'm from the city of Cape Town, and within 10 minutes drive of my house are six wine estates and uh, a beach 10 minutes away. So we say that when the millennium comes, Cape Town will stay the same, <laughs> although the rest of the world will be transformed. I, d I don't know. Thank you for that. Um, also to say, Michael, I assume that this PowerPoint will be made available through the conference downloads. Um, so people sometimes, you know, want to take notes and so on, and I, my PowerPoints are quite detailed, so don't be stressed. Just visit the website um, after the conference. Is that too far away? Uh, also to say that I am... I have a manuscript that I hope to publish this year. I'm not sure what to call it. I, I'm thinking of calling it um, G Kingdom Theology, Jesus Research and Kingdom Theology, but I don't know if that'll sell very well. Uh, I've thought of calling it the New Reformation um, with those subtitles. If you come up with a brilliant uh, name, uh, do tell me. And it'll be quite a fact book and probably the most academic piece I, I will have written in my life. Uh, so what I'm doing is I'm taking a bit out of the introduction and then jumping to the conclusion, but there's quite a lot in between uh, that I'm really summarizing. Uh, and so my real goal is to explain to the Vineyard family where we came from, theologically. And the point I'm making there is that actually the theology that we have received has developed from what has happened in the last 70 to 80 years, actually since the Second World War, which in the whole span of the history of theology is extremely recent. But a lot of uh, our people don't know, um, in a way, how radical a new departure our theology is. So I hope to explain that to you. And I am going to enjoy myself because I'm very passionate about the subject, and I just hope you do as well. Um, so, welcome. Um, so, N.T. Wright has coined this phrase, Jesus rediscovered. 
And it's, he is trying to articulate how recent this whole thing is. And um, there are four post-World War uh, things that have a symbiotic relationship with each other that are the basis of this new, fresh theological departure. The first is the discovery and availability of the literature of Second Temple Judaism. You probably have all heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were discovered in 1948. But there's a wider body of Jewish literature that shapes the era of Jesus that was not discovered or made available until recently. And so the result is for two millennia, we've been reading the Gospels without the historical context. And suddenly we now read them with the historical context. You know, if you think the Old Testament ends centuries before. Then out of that came the first bun fight, if you like, on therefore what was Jesus saying? Because all of a sudden the words of Jesus in the context showed how thoroughly eschatological his worldview was and the worldview of Second Temple Judaism. So the early uh, kind of debate, the pendulum swung this way and that way. Was he talking about an entirely future event, the kingdom, or was he talking about a present event? And there were two famous guys called uh, Schweitzer and Dodd that went off in two directions. And then these very clever German guys called Kummel and Kuhlmann, and a quite clever Dutchman called Ritterbos, um, articulated for the first time in history what we now popularly call the already and the not yet. And Ladd was an American professor who happened to be in the same institutional framework as Wimber. Oh dear. Yeah. I've never had to turn my phone off before <laughs> um, when I'm far from home. The trouble is there's a thing called WhatsApp. Um, so I, I beg your pardon. I will do that. Jerry, can you get the microphone a little closer to you as well? Yeah, all right. So that was the one big thing, is, the, is this new understanding of what Jesus taught. Thirdly, there is the post-Holocaust reflection and contrition. Contrition by Protestant theologians and a lot of reflection and a dialogue between Jewish scholars and Christian scholars, both discovering the literature of the same era for the first time. So this Jewish literature is Jewish literature. So the Jewish scholars are discovering their history. And in the middle of it is Jesus. And the Christian scholars are rediscovering Jesus. And the result is a whole new drawing together. Interesting, some of the Jewish scholars have a higher view of the authenticity of the New Testament than many liberal Christian scholars, for instance. And one of them has written a book called Jesus, the Charismatic Sage of Galilee. And he believes Jesus was anointed by the Spirit, operated in signs and wonders. And I, he even kind of thinks that Jesus rose from the dead. But he can't call him the Messiah. 
It's very interesting. So there's this whole conversation that has happened. And then more obtuse is the shift from modernism to postmodernism, uh, led mostly by linguistic philosophers, the most famous of which was Ludwig Wittgenstein. And out of that has come a new epistemology or a theory of how we know what we know called critical realism that is right across the board in all sorts of disciplines today, whether it's social anthropology or history or whatever, but it has led to a review of how the historical method is used as applied to the Gospels. And so the whole era of very skeptical readings of the historicity of the New Testament has been altered by a more realistic historical method. And I spend a lot of the time in this book describing what is modernism, what is postmodernism, how has that affected epistemology, how has that affected historiography, and therefore how has that affected the study of the New Testament. But the fact is, our theology has come out of what is called Jesus research. And Jesus research today involves the shift to postmodernism in terms of the use of the historical method. So I'm not going to say more about that. It's a big, big subject, but it's a very big factor. So if you want to just quickly look at a list of the Second Temple literature, uh, the Mishnah and Talmud and so on are actually from a much later era, but many scholars believe there are sort of residues of the New Testament era of the first century. And the Nag Hammadi writings, the Gnostic writings come from the second and third century, but some of the ideas the apostles seem to be warring against are the ideas that emerged in the Gnostic writings later. So they, they talk about an incipient Gnosticism that's, you know, Paul is dealing with in Colossians, for instance, or 1 Corinthians. And so now anybody who's studying Jesus needs to read all of that to get the context. See, the context isn't just the Old Testament. It's what happened in between to Judaism. Jesus was a Jew of Second Temple Judaism. And so I, I um, made myself read the Dead Sea Scrolls last year. And uh, I must say, it was very informative. It's very cheap to buy a whole volume of it, by the way. Amazon.com. Um, so the result is Jesus being situated in his historical context. And, by the way, the Apostle Paul. So just as there's a thing called Jesus research, so there's a thing called the fresh perspective on Paul, or the new perspective on Paul. And both are showing, are rediscovering how very Jewish Jesus was and Paul was. And yet we must say how very revolutionary within Judaism Jesus and Paul were. So the result is a quite radical claim about a fresh departure in theology. That's why I've coined the phrase a new reformation. And if you hang around with some of these Jesus research scholars, they are, are excited enough to say this could be as big as the reformation. It hasn't hit the Christian street yet, so I don't know. Um, so the guy who's really made these claims most overtly is, is N.T. Wright. And I'm just going to excerpt a few of his uh, statements. So. No, no, this is not his statement, but can it be true that we have only come to understand the person of Jesus 
and his mission and message of the kingdom for the first time in two millennia in the last few decades. That is how radical this claim is. It doesn't mean nobody ever believed in Jesus before or had any understanding of Jesus. Of course not. It's just that there's a light focused on Jesus that hasn't been quite so clear before. It's like a spotlight has come on him. So, right, if you look at his recent works, mostly his popular works, the very titles of his books show this claim. Surprised by hope, rethinking. See, everything has to be re rethought now. And if you read that book, it's all about this new inaugurated eschatology. Simply Jesus, a new vision of who he was, etc. Or he has a whole new translation of the New Testament, which he calls a kingdom translation. Uh, the challenge of Jesus, rediscovering who Jesus was, how God became king, the forgotten story of the gospel. You see, he says we, we never read them right before. Um, and so in the, how God became king, he, he comes out more overtly with this radical claim. And he really says, we've just not been reading the Gospels right for a very, very long time. We've been using the wrong lenses. And he says, the result is we have had an empty cloak Jesus. It's like a figure that's, you know, got a cloak, but inside there isn't a body. And uh, Christianity goes from his birth to his crucifixion and misses out himself. We'll go into more detail about that later. A lot of Protestant theology reads everything through Pauline lenses. They read Paul's letters, the cross and resurrection, and the Gospels kind of get filtered through that lens. He says the creedal lens is equally problematic. So when somebody comes along and says we need to be re reviewing the creeds, <laughs> this is quite a big... Uh, and of course, as an Anglican bishop, he's not saying throw them out. But the creeds go from the incarnation to the cross with nothing but a comma in between, leaving out, as he says, Jesus' kingdom inaugurating work. And he says the coming of the kingdom is conspicuously absent from the creeds, the churches of the Reformation, and the tradition of the evangelical revivalists right across the Western tradition. That is a sweeping statement. They just didn't know about the kingdom. Now, they were all good godly men, and God used them, but they didn't know these things. He says the way the divinity of Christ has become grounded is equally problematic. Using creedal lenses, his miracles are used as proof of his divinity or a self-conscious claim to divinity. In other words, that Jesus is walking around Palestine saying, very God of very God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father. And, and Wright says, no, that's not what he was thinking. Um, and he says, the main point of the Gospels, in the historical context, now rediscovered, is that Yahweh has returned to fill his temple, and the activity of Jesus is the fulfillment of this hope. So that is actually a claim to divinity, but it's not derived in the same way as orthodoxy derives it. And he says, failure to understand the central kingdom message of the Gospels is behind centuries of atonement theology since Anselm Luther 
Calvin and the rest. And we'll end on uh, later on talking about the doctrine of the atonement and why that is now being rethought. Um, and of course, when you start rethinking the doctrine of the atonement, you're pretty well going to the heart of Christianity, aren't you? So, all of that is to say that kingdom theology, as we have it, has arisen out of what I call post-Jesus research. It's a, it is a post-Jesus research Theology. And Jesus' research is a recent discipline, and, and don't worry a, a about it right now, but it's broken into the first, second, and third quest for the historical Jesus. And it's the third quest because the first quest failed, and the second quest failed, and the third quest didn't fail. And what it means, a quest, it means they rediscovering Jesus wearing new lenses of history with new information of the historical context. That's what it means. So, cutting a lot of stuff in between, we come to what is called the critical realist third quest. And our theology comes out of a part of the modern world of theology. So if you go to a theological seminary today and say, oh, you know what, we believe in the, in the vineyard. Uh, we've got all the New Testament scholars behind us they would laugh at you because in scholarship today there's the good, the bad, and the ugly. And uh, there are many camps. And so our theology is one grouping with serious weight behind it, but in dialogue and tension with other groupings. And when it comes down to it, this is, this is the, the way you distinguish between them. You know, there's, by the way, there's a, there's a book... I just thought I'd finished writing this manuscript, and then a friend of mine said, Derek, you probably need to see this book. And it's the Symposium of Jesus Research or something. 5,000 pages. <laughs> with 150 scholars or something. All Jesus Research scholars. So it's a huge field. And so what I'm doing is sort of giving some tools how we, how we find our guys in the mix. So there are Jesus research scholars who draw more on Greco-Roman sources than the literature of Second Temple Judaism and continue in the modernist use of the historical method. And modernism is not the partner of evangelical Christianity. It's the basis of all the historical skepticism. It's all mythological. We, we know dead men don't rise because we have a modernist worldview. And there's a group called the Jesus Seminar that's always the, they're the guys who, if BBC's interviewing a theologian, it'll be a Jesus Seminar kind of guy. they mostly Californian scholars, and Wright's critique of them is that the Jesus they have come up with is remarkably like a very cool Californian professor. <laughs> And remarkably unlike the apocalyptic, eschatological firebrand of the first century who got himself crucified. Their Jesus would never have got himself crucified. He was far too politically correct. Um, but there's a whole lot of them writing that sort of stuff. 
Then there are Jesus research scholars who privilege the literature of Second Temple Judaism. They say, right, we have to realize this is a big deal. We've rediscovered the context of Jesus. We must read it. And they place Jesus in his historical context, but they do not embrace postmodernism or critical realism in their historical method. So they still use lenses of methodology. And what I like to compare it to is, you know, you can have uh, a good 20-20 vision where you don't wear spectacles, or you can wear fairly good spectacles, or you can wear dark sunshades, or you can put on a welding helmet. For those who didn't grow up on a farm, I don't know if you've ever seen welding, but, you know, the arc is so bright that you have to have this thing. And their presuppositions that they have when they come to the New Testament are so um, weird that they're like walking around with a welding helmet trying to see Jesus. And they're not going to see anything um, because their methodology and their presuppositions are wrong. So what's interesting is most of these guys who write now will spend a whole book on their methodology before they even start on Jesus. Whether it's James Dunn or N.T. Wright or Paul Meyer, the Catholic scholar, they all do that because they know everything results from your predefinition of your methodology. Then there are Jesus research scholars who privilege the literature of Second Temple Judaism, place Jesus, therefore, in his historical context, and because they embrace critical realism, review the historical method. And therefore, they come up with conclusions about the Gospels that are quite different. And this is where Third Quest scholars and some of these Jewish scholars are coming to very similar conclusions about the reliability and authenticity of the Gospel picture of Jesus. So, we aren't claiming that all of scholarship agrees with us. We're saying, no, in these, all these groups, we choose one tradition, but we have good reasons for choosing that. Understanding the shift to postmodernism, understanding the importance of historical context, and so on. And the result is that our theology has come out of post-third quest Jesus research. You know, it's getting very hot in here. How are we going to breathe? Because I'm just thinking I'm going to have to get more and more inspired to keep you awake uh, as, as you gradually get carbon monoxide poisoning. Thank you, guys. Great. So all of that is an introduction to come to the place where I can try to define kingdom theology that is the basis of vineyard theology. Realizing we have been born in a fairly recent theological development. So first of all, earlier kingdom theology that Ladd picked up from the German scholars was articulated in the early post-war period. All of these guys were writing like 1950, 1955, and so on. And the first understanding of the already and the not yet, it, it was Kuhlmann who coined the phrase or the understanding of D-Day and V-Day, if you remember. And we live between D-Day and V-Day. And he actually coined the phrase the already and the not yet. Um, so it emerged out of the early 
discoveries of the literature of the, of the, of the Second Temple Judaism and the early debates. Recent kingdom theology is grounded in and takes as its starting point the Jesus of the critical realist third quest. So there's a group of scholars that are called the third quest for the historical Jesus. And the sort of leading figure is N.T. Wright. I had to speak at a New Wine conference once upon a time. Big thousands of people. And every morning N.T. Wright was sitting in, in front of me. And he then spoke right after me. And he would comment on what I'd been <laughs> speaking about. Eventually we had lunch. And uh, I suppose we, I met his human side. Um, that was quite an intimidating experience. So there are many slogans to summarize this theology. Um, N.T. Wright has coined the phrase inaugurated eschatology, which is a better way of saying the already and the not yet. I have added the word enacted because Jesus didn't just come, in, come teaching that the powers of the coming age had broken into the present, but he came acting out those powers and demonstrating them, as well as explaining them and teaching them. So I think that is a better phrase. But it's a phrase that is a gross oversimplification of a very multifaceted message and ministry of Jesus. That to grasp properly, you can't reduce it to a slogan like that. But if you do want to reduce it, that's the best slogan. Not only did he announce and demonstrate the kingdom, but he viewed his death and resurrection as the climax of that enactment. So a lot of Protestant theology before, the interpretation of the cross and resurrection had no connection to the ministry of Jesus. So like the Gospel of Mark, they used to say, the Gospel of Mark is a passion narrative with a prefix. Now you can't say that about the Gospel of Mark. The whole Gospel of Mark is about the cosmic conflict between the powers of darkness and the kingdom of God and the conflict Jesus is having uh, with the powers of darkness begins at the beginning of his ministry and grows in intensity until the cross and resurrection is the climax of that cosmic clash. Um, so now we can only think about the doctrine of the atonement in the context of the kingdom, not isolated from the kingdom. So the rediscovered Jesus is a post-quest Jesus. And it's the scholars who into this quest for the historical Jesus that have brought up innovation, frankly, in theology. So theology, it is a theology that emerges and takes a new departure in the history of theology. Any theology that starts since the Second World War is very new. Now, it doesn't mean we don't resonate with lots in the history of theology before that. Of course we do. But there's a, quite a significant fresh departure. So therefore, it is not classic Protestant theology. It takes its starting point from the Gospels, not the Pauline epistles. So the Protestant Reformation, you know, Luther discovered Romans, etc. And the whole Protestant tradition starts with Romans, and then wearing Pauline lenses reads the Gospels. Now that's impossible. Now we start with a historical Jesus in the Gospels, 
we get what he was about. Then we put those lenses on and we read Paul. And actually, Paul is improved by, by doing that. Put it, put, he's put in his context. And Jesus is the founder of Christianity, not Paul. Paul is his obedient servant. Neither is it conservative evangelical theology. So probably in the spectrum of the modern church, we are more akin to conservative evangelical theology. But there are fundamental differences over things like cessationism and dispensationalism. And uh, a lot of um, conservative evangelical theology, its framework and way of expressing itself is modernist. Now, that's a whole big subject, but for instance, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology is a typically modernist, whereas postmodern type of theology is narrative theology. It tells the story of the Bible. So if you read right, it's all about how the history of Israel has, is climaxed in the story of Jesus, and it's a narrative of the whole big picture. Of, it's it's a, just a different mindset uh, in writing theology. Neither is it a Pentecostal theology. We agree with the Pentecostals because we believe the gifts are for today. We believe in the Pentecostal power of the Spirit. But the hermeneutic of the Pentecostal starts with the book of Acts. Like the Protestant Reformation starts with Paul, we actually start with the Gospels, with Jesus and the book of Acts. It is an anti-Gnostic theology because its eschatology involves the renewal of all of creation it is a creation-affirming theology. So the, the fight you see starting in John's Gospel, Colossians, etc., between ideas that later emerged in Gnosticism and the Gospel writers has a long history in theology and a very negative influence, Gnosticism. And basically, Gnosticism is a world-denying belief that this physical creation we're in is a bad thing, when we die, our good spirits are going to escape out of our bad bodies and float off into heaven. Um, and, you know, the new world is going to be kind of the spiritual world. Whereas the Jewish belief is, no, there's a new heaven and a new earth. And God is going to renew this planet and we're going to be put into resurrected bodies. Um, and God loves his creation. So it is a creation-affirming theology. And its litmus test is theology and praxis, announcement and demonstration. Because you cannot claim to represent Jesus at all unless you're talking about announcing it and demonstrating it. Simply announcing it or simply teaching it is not what he was about. He, he always announced it and demonstrated it. So anybody who's grasping Jesus must be into uh, a theology that's very grounded in praxis. And I think that was the genius of Wimber. He took this fresh discovery of the kingdom and he said, if that's the truth, by the way, what he said is, when you get the kingdom, you realize that all the books have to be rewritten, Wimber said. And he said, if that is true, then this must be how we do church. It must be the basis of the whole approach to our ministry, the kingdom message of Jesus. And because we'll come to it just now, the relationship with creation, kingdom theology provides the biggest framework possible. 
it's, it's very big picture. Whole of the Old Testament, New Testament. Um, you, it, it's, a, it's a theology that cannot be reduced down to one or two little emphases. So, this theology, therefore, meaning Jesus himself, really, has become a new hermeneutical key. What do we mean by hermeneutical key? Is every generation in the history of the church picks certain parts of Scripture, elevates those, and uses that as the lens through which they read Scripture. So Luther discovered justification through faith based on the cross of Jesus and Paul's theology. And the whole Reformation has that hermeneutical key. Well, now we have to say there's a new hermeneutical key. The rediscovered Jesus, these Jesus scholars were saying, and especially the Jewish scholars as well, was a charismatic sage who was a masterful interpreter of Torah, introducing a radically new fulfillment of all of Israel's hopes. Jesus read and interpreted the Old Testament in a way that nobody had ever read it before, as for being fulfilled in his own ministry. And uh, he was steeped in the Torah and in Jewish literature of his day. You can see that he was influenced by by it. The historicity of his resurrection authenticates the very high Christology of the New Testament writers. The New Testament writers almost immediately came to the conclusion that Jesus was God. And in an environment of monotheism, that is quite some conclusion. And if you, by the way, N.T. Wright, um, Surprised by Hope, is his popular book on the resurrection of Jesus. His less popular book is 800 pages on the resurrection, but it is a masterful defense of the historicity of the resurrection of, of Jesus. Um, and so if Jesus was this great anointed interpreter of the Old Testament, and because he has been raised, showing that actually in him God visited us, therefore his teaching must provide the most crucial and most comprehensive hermeneutical key. We have to say, if you want to understand the Bible, start with Jesus and his teaching and his ministry. And so it must be his teaching that unlocks the eschatological expectations of Second Temple Judaism. There were all these expectations about the Messianic age. And he basically came speaking right into the middle of that. It must unlock the meaning of the Old Testament. So rereading the Old Testament through the eyes of Jesus becomes what we do now. And it, it definitely unlocks the meaning of the New Testament because every New Testament writer has as a premise of everything they teach the kingdom understanding of Jesus. And a lot of the theology now being written is how the kingdom framework of Jesus is found in Luke's theology, how it's found in Paul's theology, how it's find, found in John's theology, etc. So this is not a reformational hermeneutical key. And we, we should love the Reformation and honor them and respect them, but we realize this is a new departure. We're wearing different lenses today because of what has happened. And so all of that has come out of, strangely, historical research into the Gospels. People who say, I'm a historian, 
trying to objectively find out who Jesus really was, what he really did, what he believed about himself, uh, what he taught, and did he rise from the dead. So they, they, in a way, not trying to do theology, they're just trying to do history. But the thing about Jesus is when you discover Jesus in history, you immediately start doing theology. There's no way you can't because of who he is. And so a lot of the biblical theology that has arisen has now come out of this historical research. And interestingly, biblical theology itself is a very new discipline. It's about 20, 30 years old. Before that, history, theology was dominated by systematic theology based on the creeds. Now there's all sorts of literature that gets into the, not only the biblical books, but the major themes that run through scripture, the meta-narrative of scripture, and analyze biblical books in terms of their storyline and the way their story is structured. And, and what's coming out is that the gospel writers aren't just writers of history. They are people whose theology is embedded in their story. The way they tell the story is the way they articulate their theology. And so there's a whole fresh approach to that, which I find very stimulating. That means that this theology has to make us rethink previous theology. And I think the word rethink is important. It's not repudiate. So I can still, you know, stand up in an Anglican church and when they confess the creed, I confess it without lying at all. Yea, verily, I believe, you know. God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Can you say it all? Probably, most of you. I think most of you, if you scratch your skin, an Anglican will pop out. Um, but anyway, whether you've reformed, we, you know, the creed's big thing. So, but we, we review it because it's not that we repudiate it, but it's like a new angle, a new lens, a new spotlight has come on, on these things. So the problem with the creeds, as Wright says, is it focuses on certain key points with just a comma in between. So if you follow the creeds, it go, they go through the pre-existence of Jesus, very God of very God, begotten, etc., etc., his incarnation, who for us and for our salvation became man, right? And then it goes straight and was crucified, dead and buried, rose on the third day, sent it to heaven, and will come back to judge the living and the dead. So I like to use my toys. So have a look. Here's how the creed goes in the storyline of Jesus. And so it starts with the pre-existence, incarnation, and then it jumps to the crucifixion, burial, resurrection, ascension, and return. And all you have for the life and ministry of Jesus, Wright says, is just a comma. Now, how can that be if he's the hermeneutical key of the whole of Scripture? And, and the sad thing about it is, although all the things the creed says we can affirm, is that the creeds don't also understand these great moments in the life of Jesus through kingdom lenses. And in the Gospels, all of this is eschatological. So the birth narratives hardly say anything about the, the virgin birth. They talk about the dawning of the new age, the messianic age, the outpouring of the spirit, all the prophetic phenomena that took place. Uh, Mark's gospel, the cross and resurrection, 
are part of the last day's cosmic drama. And um, you can't, understanding this theology now, read the cross uh, in any other way. The resurrection is the supreme eschatological event because the phenomenon of the risen body of Jesus is the prototype of our bodies in the, in the coming of the kingdom. And Pentecost, Peter says, is an eschatological event. He says, this fulfills what the prophet Joel said, in the last days, end of the world, I will pour out my spirit. So if we keep the creeds, we must reteach them through the lens of the kingdom for them to be a valid creedal basis. Then kingdom theology is quite in tension with Protestantism. And what, what is happening today is you find the guys that are in the third quest and doing some of this work, there's a reaction from traditional, normally heavily reformed Protestant theologians who think their whole faith is being threatened. And actually it's not at all. None of the great, you know, salvation by grace through faith and the authority of, none of it is being threatened. It's just that they don't think anything should be new after the Reformation. The idea of ongoing Reformation, they confess. But you come up with something new. <laughs> and you're, you're deceived and, and all of that. So there's quite, uh, if you read the reactions to right and then, and so on. So anyway. So already we've noted that this theology has come out of the post-Holocaust era. And what is quite embarrassing if you read the history is Luther was an anti-Semitic guy. And most of what Hitler did, he got from what Luther said should be done. Now, of course, Hitler did more. But the thread and, and Lutheran theology and Reformed theology from that influence has a very disparaging attitude towards Judaism, first century Judaism. They talk about it as late Judaism. It's completely like blind um, legalistic, and so one of the things, and, and you see what was happening is Luther imagined that his enemy, the Catholic doctrine of um, indulgences and performance, that his war with the Catholics was exactly identical to Paul's war with the Judaizers and Jesus' war with the Pharisees. And so he took his picture of the Catholic Church and imposed it on early Judaism. And so right from there, there's this thread of anti-Semitic thinking in Protestant theology. And they did that for a few hundred years until they just, you know, gassed a few million people. And then suddenly, oh, I think we made a mistake. And how could a Protestant nation with that history act like this? So there's this whole review. And out of that has come I mean, there are books where you'll find a Christian scholar and a Jewish scholar will co-author a book just to kind of confess together that they are rethinking everything. Now, that doesn't mean all these Jewish scholars have become Christians or that we become, you know, enter into Judaism. It just means there's a whole different approach. And so we can't, we have to move on from that aspect of Protestantism. And then, as Wright has said, the, the kingdom as we understand it today is completely missing from the whole Western tradition with just this comma in between. Now, we must add a few other things that 
put us in tension with people who want to just stay with the Reformation. First of all, the doctrine of the atonement is reduced to only the legal substitutionary Pauline view, missing the classic Christus Victor view. Let me elaborate that for a, a bit. Paul actually has a multifaceted understanding of the atonement. But some of his key passages, like in Romans, do use the framework of law and a court case and a judgment and a sentence. So the whole idea of justification through faith is that God is the judge, we are tried, we are found guilty, and Jesus becomes our substitute. And in you know, historic Protestantism, takes the wrath of God on our behalf, and because of that, God can remain just and declare us justified. Classic Protestant view. Now, some of the reaction coming out of the theological trends I'm telling you about are disputing that very theology entirely. And Wright's latest book called How the Victory Began? How the Revolution Began, yeah. I feel he almost tries to retranslate some of Paul's passages beyond that where he needs to go. It's almost like there's an embarrassment now. And of course, with the millennial generation values that nobody must ever be re rejected, the idea of a God who's, who's judge, who's angry, the idea of the wrath of God, we don't like these things. So there's a whole lot of literature saying, let's remove that. Of course, the issue is, what do you exactly mean by the wrath of God? I mean, has God lost his temper? Definitely not. That's actually a pagan view of God. But does God hate injustice? Or, or, or does he dislike injustice more than we do? You know, I just think when you see, like in our country, uh, serial child abusers, and you have the whole population get, comes outside and, and demonstrates outside the magistrate's court because so many of them get let off on a technicality, what is that righteous indignation? that those people are saying, this needs justice. So there's all this debate about the nature of God, justice, and so on. But even if we keep those parts of Paul's teaching about justification through faith based on substitution, um, substitutionary atonement, it is only one window on the atonement. And a guy called Aulain wrote this book called Christus Victor, where he showed that up to the Reformation, the whole history of the early church, including the apostolic era, the predominant view of the atonement is the triumph of God over the powers of darkness. And what do you think kingdom theology is closer to? Because it's the whole battle, the collision between this world and the powers of the coming age and the, and the victory of Jesus um, and so there are many, many texts that describe, and, and the narrative structure of the Gospel of Luke is the whole understanding of the cross is it is the victory over the powers of darkness in the resurrection of Jesus. And so in Africa, for instance, the Gospel of the Atonement that says what has happened is God's power has come to set you free from demonic possession and uh, witchcraft resonates really well because it's the collision of powers, you see. Maybe it's only in a very Western world that we resonate more with a sort of legal argument, view of the atonement. So, um, uh, Steve Bernhope, who's one of your pastors here in England, 
has just published a very articulate book on the atonement, and I'm halfway through it. And I'm in suspense, because I don't know if I'm going to agree with him or not. <laughs> but he's really probing into all of this. And uh, yeah, so if you want to have a great debate, uh, read his book and uh, either keep your faith or don't, I, whatever. <laughs> but the Christus Victor view is being re-brought back into the center. So, so he actually says the view he wants is a kaleidoscopic view of the atonement. The New Testament has many different ways of articulating the atonement. And what we can't go for is the Protestant Reformation saying only one view is the right view. That can't be biblical. And the kingdom theology has made it virtually impossible to do that. Then, because Luther elevated the cross and personal justification through faith, whether he intended it or not, the kind of Christianity that has come down to us and is prevalent in much Protestant evangelicalism is a me gospel. Jesus came to die on the cross so that I can have my sins forgiven, so that I can go to heaven. And actually the gospel is not focused on what happens after we die. It includes that. But what the gospel of Jesus is about is God's kingdom is breaking into this world and transforming us and making us agents of transformation. It's, it's a different approach. So completely missing is that the bottom line is actually when you get saved, you enter into, under the rule of God. And God's government is coming back to claim this planet. And he wants it back, thank you very much. And he wants you to be with him in getting it back, which is another, another approach. And then if you add the, the filioque clauses, you know, the, the West and the Eastern Church divided over in the creeds. It says the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father in the Eastern Church. And then the Western Church said, and the Son. Now, there's a whole thing about that. But, but the result is that in the Western tradition, the work of the Holy Spirit is tied to communicating the saving e efficacy of Jesus. Whereas in the Eastern Church, there's always been an openness to, yes, the Holy Spirit does that, but the Holy Spirit also has its own distinct ministry of empowerment. And in some ways, the, the Pentecostal movement is a Eastern Orthodox resurgence in Western Christianity although they haven't thought about it like that, I don't think. Now, when you... So, so the result is, in Western Christianity, there's more of a, of a materialistic approach, a loss of the mystical. And then when you add to that the doctrine that miracles have ceased, and then you add to that that the only work of the Spirit is the regeneration and sanctifying work of the Spirit, and you don't allow for a distinct Pentecostal work of the Spirit which I hope you'll come and listen to me tomorrow when I talk about that, uh, you land up quite far removed from a signs and wonders Jesus, anointing, anointed by the Spirit, operating in the power of the Spirit and anointing us to do the same thing. So we love Protestant tradition. In many ways, you could say we are Protestants, but we also have to say, actually, in many ways, we're not. And I think the vineyard is a very strange animal on planet Earth. 
Do you know how much interaction is happening between the vineyard and the Catholics? There's a lot. They like us. And we like a lot of them. Now, of course, we're not blind to some of the theological areas, but there's this whole move in the vineyard today, spiritual mentoring, spiritual direction, Ignatian spirituality. You know, Phil Stroud, who leads the vineyard in the USA, he, he does a, a week every year in silence doing the Ignatian exercises. He did his master's on that. Um, and, and I must tell you, uh, we, we once had a conference I think it's the only time it, it happened where then about 15 countries or something, it wasn't just the national directors that met, it was the teams from each nation, like four or five leaders. And Martin Bullman, who leads the vineyard in Germany, he did a trick on us. He said, there's a great hotel in Rome, it's good value for money, I'll organize it for us to meet there. He said nothing about the Vatican. <laughs> and we, I later realized, he, a lot of his churches, the buildings they have, they can use them because he's in with all these cardinals and things like that. He's a real operator, Martin Bullman. <laughs> so the next thing, we are being formally hosted by the Vatican. And we go down, in, down below, and there are these priests. And they say, sing us some of your vineyard songs. We love your vineyard songs. And we start singing, and then they, these guys are weeping, you know. Um, and then we were preached at by Father Renero Cantalamesa, who was the preacher to the Pope then. Well, as he finished preaching, the power of God fell, actually on Debbie Wright, to tell you the truth, and then pandemonium broke out. Uh, and his whole message was so Jesus-centered. And we realized they know all about us. Um, so we love the Protestants as well. Actually, we love them all. That's what women said, love the whole church. And there's a lot of my friends who are reading Eastern Orthodox theology and just drinking some of its insights. So because of kingdom theology, we cannot be Protestant or as in anti-Catholic. We, we're beyond that. We, we are actually heirs of the whole history of theology, and we eat the meat and spit out the bones. And so, in that sense, we're not a standard Protestant evangelical movement. I would say we're a new kind of ecumenical creature. And I, I like that. It gives me, I feel, feel I can breathe. Then, coming towards a close, kingdom theology creates the most comprehensive big picture understanding of the gospel and resists every form of reductionism. So you know if it's a big chocolate cake, you cannot take a little slice out and say, I just got the kingdom of God. You've got to eat that whole cake <laughs> to be able to say, you got the kingdom of God. It's, it's a big thing. So its essential element is that it has this big picture. And this is how the big picture operates. Jesus comes announcing the kingdom of God as the fulfillment of prior eschatological expectations. All the Old Testament prophets, all these intertestament writings. So when he says the kingdom of God is at hand, that phrase already is interpreted by the history of the expectation. It can only mean 
what the expectation was talking about. And of all the prophets that he spoke of, he, he quoted Isaiah the most. And Isaiah has this grand panoramic vision of the coming of the kingdom. Which when Jesus is then saying, what Isaiah prophesied about is what I'm doing, means he is claiming to bring the kingdom in a most comprehensive sense. And it follows, therefore, that physical healing, the forgiveness of sins, the reversal of wealth versus poverty, the establishment of justice for the oppressed, and the renewal of creation and the environment all feature in what is being inaugurated. So if you think of it, some forms of Christianity, that all they really preach about is the forgiveness of sins. Or you can be, I'm just into signs and wonders. And some people think when we say in the vineyard we're into the kingdom of God, that's what we mean, signs and wonders. Well, yeah, we are. But that's one slice of the chocolate cake. See? We're also into the environment. We're green Christians. Because the whole renewal of creation is what is happening. So you'll find, didn't you notice the one song we were singing today? It talked about the renewal of creation. You'll see the songwriters. By the way, the songwriters are the most influential theologians. I talk my mouth off, and you're going to forget everything I've said as you walk out the door. But you'll be singing that song in your shower. You know? So what they write is, is really important. And you'll see it's coming in, this whole idea of, of the resurrection of Jesus and the renewal of all of creation. It's great. And personal salvation is only the doorway into the new age of the kingdom, after which we become participants in God's plan to restore creation and redeem humanity. So the idea that the whole thing is get saved and wait for the rapture, that's not the gospel. When you get saved, you've just stepped through the door into a new world that God is creating for the whole of humanity and the whole of creation, and he wants you to be now, changing sides from the powers of darkness to his side of the army and fight the fight in every way. Um, that's, that's the gospel. And so this comprehensive sense of the mission of the kingdom must therefore include personal evangelism, identity transformation, what Patti's talking about, the ministry of healing, signs and wonders, the confrontation of injustice, and the stewardship of the environment. And that is the theology of the vineyard. So, let's have a bit of dialogue. Have we got time for dialogue? Um, that's the end of my PowerPoint. Sir. Yes, I, I really appreciate you saying that his idea told that is not only reduced to legal substitution. I think there's sometimes a danger you have to go one side or the other, but do you think that some of the reaction of the reformed people is because they perceive in people like Saunders and Dunn and others, say we found the key and the only key, rather than here is something to help us explain. Because my understanding is people like Carson and so on are objecting to some of the new perspectives, not because of some of the things that are said, but the way it's said exclusively. Yeah, I think the guys that are more dangerous are people, popular guys like McClary, who says, you know, the Protestant theology of the atonement is God becomes a uh, cosmic child abuser, for instance. Well, that, that drives Protestants crazy. 
Um, I, don't, I don't think that Wright and Dunn the guys are, are arrogant in their claims. I think they exist and excited in their feeling of fresh discovery. Oh, sorry, sorry, yes. In this in sense of fresh... So I haven't picked up an arrogance, I must say. Um, but some of the more popular guys that are sort of in the name of the millennial postmodern generation um, are really arrogant about um, the idea of God's justice, for instance. There's some very strident language in some of the more popular... And maybe they're reacting to the mix of the whole thing. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, scholars are... They, I suppose they are all quite egotistical, aren't they? They, you know, they make their point. But, I mean, I mean that should be debate. Uh, yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure how arrogant they are. Yes, sir. Yeah, I mean, in that sense, we are absolutely dyed-in-the-wool Protestants. You know, the doctrine of grace has always been very big in the vineyard. I mean, a hippie movement has always been against legalism, you know. And uh, so um, if, there, if there's a danger, I think, for the vineyard, is we've almost been too much into grace. Uh, so, yeah, we, we definitely, to get us into a works righteousness would be like extracting hundreds of teeth, you know, it would be impossible, I think, for the vineyard to get into that. Um, yeah. So that's why we are, we are still Protestants as well. You know, we, we ride on the shoulders of all these greats and the contributions they made. Yes. Yes. Sure, sure. Yeah, so if you look at the way the gospel developed, and this is another talk I give in another context, is uh, contextualization happens in layers. So Jesus, first of all, comes in a very Jewish-Palestinian framework and preaches the kingdom. And all of his language is, is Second Temple Judaism language. Then Paul is called to be the, gospel to the, the apostle to the Gentiles. And he's now preaching the gospel in a Greco-Roman society. And so he is consciously doing a translation. So for instance, you, Jesus, the law and the prophets were until John, since then the kingdom of God has come. And then Paul just says, we're no longer under law but under grace. It's the same idea, but he's got a different... And you'll find, for instance, the word kingdom hardly appears in Paul's writings. The word Messiah is everywhere, which means the king. But probably because of the feeling that that word wouldn't communicate well in, in the Greco-Roman context, he had to change his language. Then you find the next generation is the early church fathers are in a Greek philosophical environment. And they have to start explaining their beliefs. And now philosophy, Greek philosophy, uh, and Latin 
jurisprudence is the worldview. And so all this creedal language, you know, of homoousius uh, and all of that is, is all out of Greek philosophy, very far removed from the eschatological framework of Jesus. But they had to grapple with the implications of Jesus' divinity and humanity, and so they used the furniture of their minds that was available to them. Um, and so then you go through history, uh, and, and in the Reformation you get yet another layer, and you could say in the Pentecostal revival yet another layer. And so between us now and the early church are layers We've got to be careful to naively say, oh, we've just jumped over all those layers back to Jesus. And in a way, every revival makes that claim, doesn't it? We've gone back to the early church. But I think Wright and them would say, because of the discovery of the literature, which really hasn't been available for the whole history of the church, we have a view of Jesus today that has never quite been available before. Where in a way, we can get in a, in a conceptual plane and go and land in the first century in a way that has never been available before. And I think that is where the radical claim of a fresh start happens. And the worst type of theologian is a theologian who is unconscious of their presuppositions. You know, so like Protestants, who don't realize that the Reformation had a cultural context, for instance, and just think, no, it was just, just you know, the gospel landed on Luther's head, boom, you know, without a, without a context. Um, so being conscious of the influence of culture and, and worldviews, as well as with the creeds. I mean, those creedal guys, they were, what was going around in their head, Greek philosophy in their head was, it's difficult for us to grasp sometimes, the, you know, the language. What was amazing is that Athanasius was in his 20s, and he virtually wrote the creed. Amazing. But that, that's what they were schooled in. Yeah, I hope that was helpful. Yes. I just, I tend to talk about the message and ministry of Jesus uh, because he, he was message and ministry, Dem proclamation and demonstration. So the words and works of Jesus, uh, somehow as long as we use language that makes us understand he was both is, is important. So that's what I would uh, I'd tend to use. Yes, let's go to the lady at the back because all the, all the guys have been talking. Yeah, okay, so I'm, I'm assuming um, the general consensus of the dating of the, of the gospel tradition. So most people will see that Mark's gospel is the earliest gospel, maybe going back to the 50s and 60s. Then there is a whole lot of material in Matthew and Luke that is almost identical, which is called Q, it just means source which people think goes back to the 50s. Then, probably after that, you get Luke, Luke Acts and Matthew, and people will date that 60s to 80s. And then most people see the Gospel of John being written like towards the 80s and 90s. And, and John's Gospel is the most reflective. He's had long time to think. Um, and you can see there is a, a development in the thinking. So 
the Jesus Research Scholars, for them, it's important to go back to the most original sources, but also be aware of the layers. So back to our layers, the actual layers in the Gospels themselves. So that's why I... Um, so those who want to start with, let's say, what we can, can we be really sure was, was really Jesus? They will start with Mark and Q, and then they will use criteria, and then they will mine Luke and Acts and Matthew and, and John. But then sometimes they will f- realize that John comes up with stuff that is very ancient and Palestinian. So the idea that he's, n- there's nothing early in John is also being questioned as well. How's our time management? Yes, sir. Mm. No, no, I said one, one of the parts of Paul's theology. Yeah. No, I don't think it's wrong at all. What I think is that he used the context, and the context was Roman law and court cases, and so his whole doctrine of justification is within the context of that. But he also spoke about the cosmic war aspect of, of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, so, no, it would be wrong to reduce Paul to one. You know the idea of the kaleidoscopic view of the atonement? Paul's got quite a few sides of the diamond himself. Yeah. No, no, no. No, what are we saying? What I'm saying is that the reformers put on spectacles where they picked out of Paul certain things. Yes, sir, at the back, I see people are getting restless. Last question. Last question. Yeah, that's what I was saying. That gentleman at the back there, yes. Um, can, can the notes on the website, Michael? Yes, yeah, we'll, um, we'll put it out with all the resources that come out for. For the actual content, so it'll be sent out. Okay. Thank you.